Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Hello, I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy here at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and we're very glad to have you all with us today. And it is my particular pleasure to uh, welcome Chris Hughes uh, to the ranks of the uh, ink-stained wretches of this world, which uh, he, he may be a digital guy, but he is now, because of the New Republic, entered uh, a world that's also one steeped in tradition. Um, today's is going, today's uh, interview and conversation is going to be recorded by a C-SPAN, so I would ask you to be mindful of that when you come down to ask questions later. Those of you who are interested, you come to these two mics. The hashtag for today, if you are following it on uh, Twitter, is Chris Hughes, C-H-R-I-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. Uh, I don't think I really need to introduce Chris Hughes very much to this group, obviously. He is um, someone who is from a southerner from Hickory, North Carolina, who uh, got himself to Harvard and by a set of uh, fortuitous circumstances managed to be uh, the roommate of Mark Zuckerberg at a time of great historic importance, the creation of Facebook. This happened in his sophomore year, and uh, he told me just a moment ago that he was taking five classes both semesters while that was going on and still managed to uh, graduate with a magna a couple of years later. Uh, Facebook, of course, is something that has changed the world. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was the fourth. Uh, you were the fifth, as I understand it. One, two, three were test accounts. Test account. All right, there you are. Um, but the thing is, Chris Hughes did something counterintuitive all the way along the line. First of all, he didn't fall. He didn't leave Harvard. He finished it with a magna. He then went to work for uh, Facebook and did work there, but left Facebook um, in 2007 in order to work for the Barack Obama campaign. Uh, that was something that was anything but a sure thing then. And it was something, though, that, that was consistent with the kinds of things that Chris Hughes has been talking about then and ever since, which was trying to live a life that was going to have a genuine impact, uh, a direct positive impact on the world, I think are the words you've used. Less than a year ago, he purchased control, dominant control, of a venerable publication, The New Republic, that was also uh, uh, in failing health and has, in the months since, made an awful lot of dust and caused an awful lot of interest because he has not only bought it, made himself publisher and editor-in-chief, but he has actively uh, engaged in reshaping it and has clear ambitions to make The New Republic something that uh, will be among the most influential and the most important uh, idea magazines in, in, in the country. Uh, he is serious about high-quality journalism. That is the thing that uh, he talks about again. Uh, but his focus is not just about digital technology. He has taken this venerable institution and this venerable profession, journalism, and is looking at them 
you know, form informed by his deep knowledge of digital technology in the digital world, but also with a different set of values uh, that are more traditional. It is my great pleasure, Chris, to welcome you here. His uh, subject is the changing media landscape, smart news in the age of social media. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, uh, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's particularly nice to be back across the street from Kirkland House, which is where we started Facebook actually nine years ago yesterday. Uh, it was the anniversary, February 4th of uh, 2004 is when we opened it up to a few dozen people at Harvard and the next morning we woke up and it was, there were, there were hundreds of people on it already. So it's, um, it's nice to be back in, in Cambridge particularly right now. Um, so I thought I would talk a little bit for maybe 15 uh, minutes or so, give you some context on, on um, what I'm doing, what we're doing at the New Republic, talk about how we sort of see the, the digital media landscape uh, in 2013 and then open it up for questions and hopefully get a good, good dialogue going. Um, so I think the first question that people, well, the first question that people ask me all the time is, why in the world would, something, would someone like you buy this 100-year-old media institution like the New Republic? In an age when uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that print is dying, that serious journalism is um, under threat, why would you be crazy enough to take this on? It's got to be either um, uh, a vanity project, or I've got to have some uh, political axe to grind, or um, some ulterior motive. Um, other people just look at me like I'm playing crazy. <laughs> but, um, but the truth of it is that I bought the New Republic because I believe in the power of great writing to shape how we see the world. And that sounds incredibly idealistic, um, and uh, it is, and it's, it's lofty, but I'm not ashamed of it, and I think that the, the people that we have at the New Republic who are embarking on this project now um, are a pretty idealistic group. In a lot of ways, though, we're following in the footsteps of the, um, the founders of the New Republic 100 years ago. If you go back and look at what they were writing in, in 1914 when the magazine was starting, they too were a pretty idealistic group. They were writing and starting the magazine in a time of enormous uh, transition, just as war was breaking out in Europe. Um, and uh, they too brought a sense of, of, um, of uh, hopefulness and idealism to their project. Herbert Crowley, who was the founding editor of the magazine, um, was quoted as, as saying that he saw that it's, its purpose to, be, to start little insurrections in the realms of our readers' convictions. And it's one of my favorite quotes from the archives uh, because a century later, I think we're following in his same footsteps. So what does that mean? Um, what does that mean for us? The 21st century is clearly different from the environment that they started it in uh, 100 years ago, but our core editorial focus is to challenge our readers' assumptions. And uh, one, from one perspective, I might say, well, doesn't all media do that? Um, and I think particularly in 2013, we're in an environment where it does not. Um, on one end of the spectrum, we have um, what I call sort of, uh, where newspapers used to be the dominant um, news delivery method, but it's grown, it's sort of the, the headline end of the spectrum. So it's now, of course, the New York Times, but also the Huffington Post, um, the Daily Beast. Um, you know, there's a whole string of 
news sites which give you information about what happened yesterday. It's, uh, it tends to be headline driven. It tends to be what you read at 9 a.m. It's part of my media digest every day. It's part of everyone's media digest. On the other end of the spectrum, at least historically, there have been um, uh, magazines, which um, part particularly in today's age, been thought of as being largely about, um, about storytelling. I think of things like the New York Times Magazine or um, the New Yorker or um, other really venerable New York Review of Books, um, other really venerable uh, publications which um, take time to read, take context, and are for a pretty, um, a pretty patient and educated audience. For us, we're trying to position ourselves in uh, the space in between these two poles. The goal of the New Republic is to do great writing, the type of writing which is um, as good or if not better than some of the, the uh, magazines that have made their name by doing great writing, but to do it about important and timely topics that, uh, that our readers want to know about. There's a level of, of urgency to the type of journalism that we want to do, and for every single piece that we publish editorially, we ask ourselves, why is this important? We don't want to just tell stories, and we don't think that um, uh, uh, most sort of modern consumers of news just want stories for the sake of stories. Um, they, the great writing is an important entree in, but the news has to be about, has to be meaty. It has to be about something that's important and that matters. In the past year, we've done a lot of research on this point, um, qualitative research and quantitative research, and have found that um, this is how this is what readers say that they want today. They want great writing. They want um, an entree into big ideas, but they want it to be highly relevant to uh, the topics that are uh, top of mind. As part of our strategic priority, though, uh, as part of our strategic priorities, it's not just content that um, is enough for us. One of the things that uh, I want and I want the New Republic to do, and I think we're, we've started doing this as of our, our relaunch in the past couple of weeks, but is to build the type of technology that adapts to how consumers are reading and consuming content today. And this is going to be a constant ongoing project. It's not like we do it once and we put a redesign out there and then we're all done, simply because how many devices exist, how many different ways of consuming content um, there are in 2013. But uh, we've tried to adapt to how people are reading. So what does that mean? It means that while we still have a print edition, the vast majority of people interface with the New Republic digitally first. We have two million monthly um, uniques. And even before we redesigned our website, twin, over 20% of those folks were coming to us from mobile devices. So we've built now an HTML5 web product, which um, without geeking out a little bit uh, too much, is. Um, responsive to the browser that you're using. So it's the same, we're using the same content management system and the same things on the back end, but when a reader goes to it, we know if you're reading it on your iPhone or you're on your Android device, if you're on an iPad or if you're on um, your computer and immediately change screen resolution size to adapt to that experience. We've also uh, added a, a lot of small features which um, came, some of them came out of what we felt like we wanted as a team in reading, and some of it came out of uh, the conversations and research that we did. We have um, features that do cross-device syncing. So if you start reading a 2,000-word piece in your computer at lunch, 
you can pick right pack, pick uh, back up where you left off on your phone on your commute home. Or if you start reading something over the weekend and you want to read it uh, back at work, we know where you were. We have a bookmark, and we can take you right back to it. We have audio versions of all of our content, so that it, again, if you're commuting on a treadmill or just want to play it in the background um, while you're at your desk. You can listen to it um, be read to you. We have an iPad app. We have a long, I'll stop with the, the laundry list. But the point is, is that from a technology perspective, um, we're not just writing content, putting it on a website, and then um, uh, uh, calling it a day. We're writing the content, putting it on the website, trying to understand and go to our readers where they're reading it, and then importantly, have our, our editorial staff continue to engage in the conversations that are happening after their content is originally published. In our new website, we have um, something called our marg marginalia, which serves a couple purposes. One is uh, you can do footnotes and endnotes, which is something that a lot of our writing um, uh, really, um, a lot of our writers have lots of ideas that don't make it into the text or might break up how the piece is written. And so they can now foot footnote things and, um, and add, uh, add little comments in the marginalia. But it's also a place where we can continue to curate the social conversations that are happening after a piece is published. The old model would be for, I would say for a journalist, would have been to just write a piece, you file it at a certain time, it comes out in the newspaper the next day and you're done. From my perspective now, you write a piece and you post it on the web, but not only are journalists responsible for promoting it, but they're also responsible for engaging in a dialogue with people on Twitter and on Facebook, people who hate it and people who love it. And we want to curate those conversations too so that you know, if we have a piece that makes it onto um, Jon Stewart, as it did last week, that's in the marginalia, alongside with a comment of somebody saying this is completely wrong. You guys <laughs> you know, missed, the, missed the whole point here. Um, which, is, uh, which is an important dynamic um, because the conversation that continues after the piece is where I think a lot of the impact, um, impact can happen. So in all this, um, there's, there's sort of two major object, not objections, but questions about, um, about our work and um, whether or not it can be successful, trying to take the ser this serious journalism and adapting it to digital age. The first is um, that in the age of Twitter and Facebook, are people really seriously interested in reading quality journalism? Um, and this is one of my favorite questions because I feel like um, my own background in the world of social media um, hits up against the world of serious journalism all the time. And what I say and what we see in our data is that social media is is not actually competing with the attention spans of people reading longer pieces or not doesn't necessarily need to be longer, more substantive quality journalism. In fact, more often than not, it's enabling that to happen uh, uh, increasingly. For us at New Republic, before social media, we would have had to have relied on just our brand to have people come in and type newrepublic.com into their browser or into Google which as much as I would love that everyone is like, you know, bookmarking us and constantly coming to our homepage, um, a lot of times it's just not realistic. Um, whereas with social media, because we enable the people who are reading our stuff to share it um, and to attract a larger and larger following, it means that we've been able to bring in a lot younger of a demographic, a lot of readers that had not known the brand before, 
but who are excited and who are interested in, in reading it. Over 20% um, over of our traffic is now coming from um, Twitter and Facebook and Reddit. Um, and that's uh, it's about double what it was a year ago. And part of that, I think, is our social media strategy. But to be honest with you, I think a lot of that is just uh, the evolving nature of the internet and the way that people discover, um, discover our content. The, another data point on this is that um, Pew has been doing some incredibly um, uh, uh, great research on reading and um, serious content in the digital age. And one of my favorite studies to cite, because I think it's because it's so mind-blowing, came out in the fall. And they specifically were looking at reading amongst people uh, who were uh, 16 to 30. And what they found was that people in that age demographic were actually reading uh, as many, if not slightly more, statistically, at least as many books as they had in the past. So reading of books was not down amongst that demographic. However, uh, you were uh, uh, just as likely to have read it in, on your mobile phone as you were on print. There's a little wrinkle there. I think that print may have been a little bit higher. But the mobile phone was higher than an iPad, higher than any type of tablet, um, and higher than any of the other uh, methods that you, know, you would assume that people are moving to for, for e-books, which I thought was a, it's just a really fascinating it's a fascinating social trend, but it's also uh, uh, something that reminds me that how quickly the digital world is moving. That there are there's a whole sort of swath of people who are reading full-on books on their phones while they're waiting in line or in bed or wherever they may be, um, and that's a key way that they're consuming this long-form type of content. And yet they're consuming it at the same rates as they have historically. It's a reason that you know, one of the things that we've really done is emphasize this mobile-first approach to make it, we got rid of pagination, we did audio, all these things, to make it as easy as possible uh, to read on a phone. Even though it seems counterintuitive, who would want to read a 2,000-word piece on the phone? The evidence um, is showing that there's more and more that are interested. The second skeptical point of view um, is around our ability to monetize and to, um, to be a, a successful business. And on this one, I wish I could even pretend like we had all the answers. Um, we have some hypotheses that we're testing, um, but um, it's going to take some time to know if our hypotheses are even are right. Um, and I think it requires a certain amount of, of, of patience on these questions. The way that we're thinking about it is, um, or that I think about it in particular, is that Outside of a few highly professionalized verticals, particularly things like finance or, in some cases, sports or um, some, some very clear verticals, people are not generally willing to pay for access to content um, uh, in, a digital, in a digital environment. But I think they are interested in supporting brands that they believe in, and I think that they're interested and still willing to pay for experiences. Um, and I think experiences are qualitatively different than access. So to, to be a little bit more precise uh, about this, I think the old model used to be you give, at least for the New Republic, the old model used to be you give us $35 and we give you 20 issues of print. And that worked for a very long time until the web, until all the uh, 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 business models were disrupted. 
Now, our model is you give us $35 and you get print, but then you also get what, what we call our experiential products. In the digital column, it's all the things that I was talking about before, um, audio, digital premium, unlimited access, commenting, and there's several other things in that list. And then you get access to um, subscriber-only events, which um, we are doing at least once a month in um, major cities and also in um, uh, some secondary markets um, like you know, Ann Arbor or Austin or places where um, there's a lot of people who are interested in the type of journalism that, um, that we do. Whether or not the experiential products will be enough is, is an open question, but it's certainly part of a trend where, from an editorial perspective, the journalists are not just researching and writing. They're researching, writing, promoting, engaging in dialogue, and then also uh, uh, being important participants in events and, um, and interacting with their readers. I think other brands in our field um, have moved on to, um, to cafes, to retail, I mean, particularly Monocle. I think upwards of 20% of their revenue um, comes from their uh, retail, their stores, which they have a dozen, couple dozen of across the world. Um, and there's, you know, still other ideas. I think that, I think that the way, from my perspective, this era, the era when there were sizable profits in this industry, um, is over. I think it was a pretty fast one in the second part of the 20th century. And we're now having to adapt to, um, to a different kind of business. It's a double bottom line business. I think that's the right way to think about it. We have a social mission, which is important to the world, at the same time as we have a profit mission. Um, but uh, the, the idea that we're going to you know, find some business model which is going to um, return us to the point of prosperity that was the case 20 or 30 years ago in, the, in this industry, I think, is, um, is wishful thinking. Um, on advertising, just to say a word about that too, I think that the advertising market is still very slowly changing and shifting. Um, and uh, it's a challenge for us, it's a challenge for everyone else that um, I think is in our field. One of my, the things that I'm focused on the most is trying to help advertisers um, focus on real valuable metrics and not just sort of the top line superficial ones that I think most people ask about. Um, some things like page views, or even unique visitors um, don't necessarily tell you anything about how the, the level of engagement or how good um, a digital or web product is at retention. I mean, if you want to boost page views or you want to boost unique users, you can A-B test headlines all day long. And you can get lots of people to click on a, on a headline and they can count as a unique user, but whether or not your journalism is quality or from an advertiser's perspective, whether or not a person is actually lingering there, interacting with an, adver uh, an advertiser's content, none of those questions are asked by these top line metrics. So um, it's, um, you know, I personally have, have started to engage with a lot of the advertising community a bit more over the past few months, and it's clear to me that there are a lot of people who are thinking creatively about new solutions here, but more often than not, they're custom solutions that are built per brand, per advertiser, um, and uh, it takes time for them, not just for the New Republic, whether it's the New Republic or BuzzFeed, to understand how these different products exist, what the interactions are like, and, um, and uh, how, they can, how they can monetize them and, and, and use them to their advantage in a meaningful way. Um, 
all of these ideas, the, the last thing I'll say before opening up for questions is one of the key things that we're trying to do with the New Republic, which I think is um, very much been in the DNA of Silicon Valley for a very long time, but not so much in this industry, is take a, a, a highly experimental approach. <clears throat> um, you know, in Silicon Valley, the expectation for a venture capitalist is that you know, she or he will invest in 10 different companies, and hopefully one of them will be a great success, two of them will be okay, and it's more likely than not that seven of them will fail. Um, but, um, but that's okay. Um, for us, we're trying lots of different ideas. And I don't expect any one of these things from a technological perspective, or even from a business perspective, to be some silver bullet or for us to discover you know, the, um, the cure to all of our ills. Um, but what I do know is that we have to create a culture inside of our company, and I think <clears throat> this is the same thing for giants like the New York Times or, um, or small sort of um, emerging blogs. You have to create a culture where, where there's a high amount of experimentation, where we're really honest about what's working and what's not working thus far, um, and where we continue to experiment with new ideas to see what works and see, see what doesn't. It's, um, it's clear to me that that's not something that's necessarily been part of the DNA or part of the culture of the uh, world of journalism for a long time, but I think um, there are a lot of brands and a lot of people out there that are trying to do that increasingly so, and I think as long as that continues to be the case, it, it, gives, um, it gives me uh, a lot of, of optimism about um, not only the state of what we're doing, but the state of the industry in the future. Great. Chris, uh, I'd like to... Chris and I'll have a conversation for just a few minutes, and then uh, we'll open it up to, to you. Uh, on the business side first, one of the things that people find unpleasant in, uh, in buying enterprises that are losing money is continuing to lose money. Uh, are you, do you have a tolerance for basically funding losses for a while? I mean, this is, this is you, you have gotten, you've spent money. What, have, what's the definition of a while? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, do you, have you thought about that, or are you just sort of going to let that sort of take care of itself? Or is it something you've actually given a thought to? No, I mean, I spend the, the, uh, the majority of my time on the business um, and on um, You want it to, to be profitable, but does it have to be profitable? I, th I, I think it should be profitable, and I think it's our challenge to prove to ourselves and to the world that we can find a profitable model. And when I say profitable, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not uh, saying that, you know, we're going to be you know, making a lot of uh, money hand over fist. And like clearly I'm in this for, well, I don't know if it's clear or not, I'm in this for the journalism not to, you know, uh, make a lot of money for myself. So profitability is to me um, synonymous with sustainability. Once we get the company to a point where the journalism, it, there's enough of a market who wants and, and who demands our products and is willing to pay for it, then the company can um, uh, go much longer, can outlast me for a long time. The question is, how long is it going to take us to get there? And I, and I think that, excuse me, there's, there's no way that, um, that, uh, that we could get there without serious investment. So that means losses this year. It probably means losses next year. But into 2015 and moving forward, I do think that we can get um, to sustainability, if not profitability. It's more of a macabre version of, 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 of pleasure. If you, if you recall your Dickens, macabre's idea of heaven was one dollar more or one pound more than, uh, than he spent. Right, right. Uh, and hell was the other 
So, uh, but I mean, the point is that essentially says sustainability is more of a break-even than a. Than, I mean, that's a different standard and one that will not be as hard because in the in the in the business of journalism, the business of journalism, the standard for profitability is significantly more than that in many 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 places, including you know at local newspapers and things like that. That's going to be easier, and that's good as far as those of us who care about the journalism is concerned. I want to talk to you about the journalism now, if I may, for a moment. Uh, what kind of a journalistic enterprise do you want the New Republic to be? Do you want it to be a place where the reporting is considered to be very strong, where the, where the analysis and the opinion uh, writing is, mm -hmm. uh, is very strong? But, I mean, how do you sort of weigh those, and how do you imagine the mix at the New Republic of that right. kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, historically, the New Republic had a lot of opinion journalism. Um, and if you think, I mean, if you think before the internet um, in particular, uh, the role of opinion journalism was incredibly important. I mean, if you were someone who was trying to shape public policy debate, or even if you were just trying to get your own opinion out there so it was part of a mix and a conversation in, in um, Washington or New York or Hollywood, I mean, whatever field you were in, you had to go to a few, a handful of, of print publications and um, have it be included in those pages. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but I, but I think it is, it's worthwhile to remember because it is so different than the model and the universe that we live in now. Not only could you go, if you have an opinion, you can go blog about it, but um, whether you have your own blog, the Huffington Post or somebody else will be happy to, um, will be happy to post it for you, but you can also go to, uh, uh, Twitter, you have uh, all of these outlets for people to share their opinions now. So there's plenty of opinion. The shift that we're trying to make from an editorial perspective is we're going to continue to do some opinion um, journalism so we can be part of the debate. But where I think that the market demand is and what people really want is, um, is the type of journalism that is more reported, that is more contextual, that is um, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a deeper journalism that is surfacing new points or exposing new ideas than it is necessarily just sharing another sort of um, opinion about what's, what's happening in the world. That's where I think the, the hole is in the marketplace. One of the things that I've read in preparing to have this conversation with you about your experience as the new editor-in-chief at the New Republic is that you stopped uh, a magazine cover because you found it to be, I mean, I, I don't think that's a small thing. I, I'd really like to know how your thinking was and how you, what, what was at stake as far as you were concerned? What were you trying to do? That was an easy one. Um, we don't call people names. That's, uh, you know, I, I think we can have intelligent debate about a lot of different topics and we can, we can call people out. But calling people out is different than calling people names. And so some of the, the cover lines on, I bought the magazine on a Thursday and this was like the next, Week. I mean, it was literally, I didn't even know where the printer was, let alone uh, how the logistics around it happening. So it sounds quite, it's, it's a good story because it sounds quite dramatic. It was actually more like I got sent the cover and I was like, we need to change that word. By that point, it was apparently already at the press, which, uh, 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 which I didn't and know. And somebody but, said, do you realize it's going to cost you X in order to do this, I would imagine? Yeah, well, fortunately or unfortunately, because the New Republic's... Uh, Circulation network is not as large as some of the others. The uh, the cost was not as uh, was wasn't was uh, wasn't significant at all. Um, so uh, 
But it is. But but I think it's it's. Well, tell, a, tell you're what, right what, to what, highlight what, what it because the issue it is. Was. I mean, because it is. I think it's important to. There's lots of places on the internet where you know you can um, um, call people names. There's not that many places on the internet where you can call people out in a substantive, thoughtful um, way. Of course, you know. It, uh, of course, people do it. But I think that from a brand perspective, we have to do. Um, uh, reported journalism, and we have to do the type of opinion journalism that's well documented, that's careful, and that's um, well thought out. And if you put a word in a headline that calls somebody a nut or uh, a baby or whatever it, that seems like a small thing, you immediately turn them off. And if you're trying to get the other side to listen, or if you're trying to actually engage in a debate, you know, the first thing that you maybe should not do is is call them a name. <laughs> so, um, I mean, if 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 there is some difference there historically, then um, it's one that you know. I, I mean, I think it's an important well, point to the thing that's really interesting is that the the as I recall, it was uh, the headline referred to Wall Street guys as crybabies. Was that the mm -hmm. was that it? And and you found that you changed it. You, you what did they change it to? By the way, I don't even remember. Whiners? <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember. I mean, it was clear. But, I mean, the but, point of the story was, it was a great piece. It's, um, one of our reporters, Alec McGillis, wrote a piece on why so m many people in Wall Street um, were so upset about uh, the administration and, and a lot of the policies of Barack Obama, because you could argue that you know, the administration was much more sensitive to, um, to Wall Street than it was to Main Street um, in the course of the first term. Hi, it was incredibly well reported. Alec had talked to all of these hedge fund guys. And um, the question is, is you know, you sort of want to call them out and force them to think about whether or not their opinions are actually reasonable. But you're not going to be able to do that if the first thing that they see is if you're calling them but a crybaby. But that edge is very much part of the culture of the web now. And it's a part of the culture, especially of magazine journalism and covers and so forth. I mean, it's, they're calculated to be provocative. They're calculated to cause offense, if you will. I do a degree. They're calculated mainly to get people to read them, to make them feel. And the, the values of the web, journalistically, are for that kind of edge far more than something that would be considered fair. If you're using uniques as your metric, which is what most companies do, then you certainly want to write things that are provocative, that are enraging, that are um, that because it works on both sides. It gets the the people who agree with it, you know, uh, all amped up, and they want to read it, and then it really it uh, ang angers the other side. So if that's the if that's the goal, then I think a lot of the journalism on the web does do that. But I also feel like there's a lot of people like myself who, who um, when it comes to opinion journalism, I feel like I got plenty of it. I don't need any more. Everybody's got an opinion. I love Twitter, and I love a lot of the people that I read. But I've got plenty of different opinions and perspectives. What I find that I crave and what we found in, um, in a lot of the conversations and research that we've done is that people want news sources that are uh, thought-provoking, relatively unbiased, but in, in our category, I'm not talking about all different types of, of news consumers. In the category of, of smart, educated, politically savvy people, uh, uh, they want unbiased, highly reported coverage more so than they want just okay. more opinions. Let me invite you, those of you who have questions for Chris, to come and line up at these, uh, at these two microphones. What, 
so far. Well, well, sure. Maybe while, while people are, are, just to clarify that last point, I do think it's really important that we're focused on um, a relatively specific group of people. I mean, it, it's college-educated folks who follow the news somewhat closely, uh, very closely or extremely closely, and who are politically savvy but may not be necessarily be politically obsessed, who want to know about film and, and literature and um, social movements, um, but who are also interested in, in politics. And I think that level of focus enables us to have that perspective um, in a different way than if we were running a television network or if we were trying to, you know, mm -hmm. um, focusing on a larger, larger, more diverse demographic. Bill. Chris, I wonder if you could address um, some of the opportunities you see on the horizon in terms of engaging new Republic audiences, whether it's the, the next iteration of crowdsourcing or whatever it is, whatever ways you see to engage the audience in ways that intersect with the, the two double lines that you described, that have impact both on your social consequence as well as your sustainability. But the, it begins with the ways to engage them in the journalism. I think, I mean, what we're trying to do from an editorial perspective is go to, the peop go to our readers rather than um, create, necessarily create new products that ask them to come to, to us. And so um, being uh, very much engaged with the conversations particularly on Twitter and to some extent on Facebook, um, is a really important strategic priority for what we're doing. We're also um, uh, doing and experimenting with ideas of around trying to use technology to um, really engage in those dialogues in a way that hasn't been possible. So something like Google Hangout, which is, um, we use Google Hangout a lot because we have, um, we have about 25 folks in New York and 30 uh, people on staff in Washington. and. Um, we have big TVs in both of the conference rooms, and we have them connected with Google Hangout, um, which um, sounds silly, but it means that you can literally just like go into the conference room, and this person goes into the conference room, and then you can have, maybe it's not a face-to-face -face conversation, but it's, um, it's the next best thing. Um, but we we've have this culture now of people using Google Hangout all the time, and so one of the ideas that we've just been talking about in the past week or two is what if our reporters um, were engaging in a dialogue? They could be could be one of our reporters in Michigan, or it could be one in Washington, um, on Google Hangout with some, perhaps some of the experts that she or he talked to, um, uh, with some of the people who were reading it and who had good criticisms of it. I mean, there's opportunities there that will that will that work? Will people want that? I don't know. But that's one of the things that when I talk about a culture of experimentation, I really want us to try to see if it um, uh, to see if it makes sense or to see if it doesn't. If it doesn't, then, but you know. The social, media, the social media environment is the place where we have to go first to engage. While we're experimenting with all these things, what we know is important is engaging on Twitter and, to some extent, Facebook um, constantly, whether it's reporters, the brand, everybody. Our next questioner is a colleague who I have not seen in a long time, Michael Ignatieff, who you may or may not know. And if you do know, I suspect he'll be writing for the New Republic. <laughs> I do. Michael. Um, just to say, to declare an interest, I have written for the New Republic for many years, and I'm very um, enthusiastic about what you're proposing to do. Seems really good to me. The one question I had was about the association with the New Republic with liberalism. For a better part of a century, when people think about the New Republic, they think about it as a liberal magazine. I'm just wondering what that mission means to you and how it will change under your leadership? I think that 
What I did, what I don't want is for the New Republic as an institution to have an editorial line where we get in the business of hiring or not hiring people because they agree or disagree with a, with a particular viewpoint. Um, what I do want is for us to practice a type of journalism which doesn't necessarily pretend to be, uh, pretend where the journalists pretend not to have certain opinions or judgments. I think that one of the issues structurally with the media um, today is there's still this, um, uh, particularly with news with uh, newspapers, is he said this, she said that, and you know let the reader decide. With the type of journalism that we do, our our reporters, what's great about them is that they engage, they learn, and they have an assessment, and hopefully they include that that point of view and that assessment in their in their piece. Um, you know the vast majority of our of our readers and writers are generally liberal folks. I'm pretty sure uh, most, if not all of them, um, voted for Obama. So I'm not, uh, you know, I think they share a similar worldview as our readers. But, you know, I certainly didn't buy the magazine to, um, to exp exp expand a liberal outlet. You know, I, I bought it for the type of journalism that, that we can do inside it, which, you know, there, different people could say different things about how that intersects with the New Republic historically. We did some um, some quantitative research around this question. Do you think the New Republic? Do you know the New Republic? Yes. Do you think that it's liberal or do you think it's conservative? I think twenty four percent of people said conservative and twenty two percent said liberal. <laughs> so and it's you know and it's and me, and now as a, as a, as an owner of the magazine, it's really interesting when you in Washington or New York because a lot of folks will say. Well, they, you know, they used to support the editorial board supported the Iraq War. They supported this or took a hard line on that, and it's got to be—it's very conservative. Other people will have the opposite viewpoint. And what I always end up saying is, is um, you know, we don't have a party line anymore. We have a lot of reporters uh, who have a lot of different opinions, and hopefully, um, each one of them can help. Some of them you'll love, some of them you'll probably hate, but each one of them hopefully will um, change how you think about. The world around you. Are you going to write a column or have any editorial voice in an explicit way? I'll, I'll probably write some. I haven't yet. Um, I uh, talk about the business and how many years of uh, losses we're willing to foot. No, I mean, um, uh, I'm spending most of my time on the business stuff. I, I definitely will write, but I think it's also important in an initial period for me to be very clear that I didn't, you know, I didn't buy the New Republican. I'm not here to amplify my own voice or my own editorial uh, positions. I did it to empower the people who do this for a living to do, to do it if you would, If you would identify yourselves, please, yes. Yeah, I'm June Ehrlich. I'm the editor-in-chief of Revista, the Harvard Re Review of Latin America, and I also teach journalism. Um, you're doing an amazing job of trying to blend two journalistic cultures. Uh, I know the New Republic going back many years. Many of my students, I find, know the New Republic through the movie Shattered Glass, um, and which depicted, for those of you who don't know, a uh, major breach of journalism ethics in which a journalist was making things up. Um, in the internet culture, there's much more of a culture of like passing things on and repeating things and um, in the print culture, in what the New York, the um, New York Times, the New Republic, and many other traditional magazines defend, is what the New Republic defended by firing glass, um, is truth. But 
I was wondering, as you take over this magazine, what it, does your fact-checking process look like? Mm -hmm. And are you writing a new code of ethics? And in that code of ethics, how are you taking into account that you're trying to breach these two cultures? Yeah, fact-checking is, in, is incredibly important to what we do, but for two reasons. One, because um, you know whatever we're publishing, we want to make sure any facts that are citing are right, because I think it's, it's, it's ethical and it's what it means to have a sense of integrity as a publication. But it's also really incredibly important for, um, for us as a company, for our brand. People have to, one of the key differences between us and you know, a lot of the other places where you can find content on the web is that we do have a brand. We do have a hun nearly a hundred year um, uh, history and people have to be able to trust that the facts are right. They're clearly, you know, whether it's with Stephen Glass or a couple other episodes, um, you know, there have, there have been lapses at the New Republic historically and I think as a result there's an even more, people are even more on their toes now culturally um, to ensure that that doesn't happen um, anymore. We have a pretty robust reporter researcher program and they along with other folks on staff and along with um, uh, reporters themselves are fact checking their work um, uh, several times through. So it's, it's, it's important because of the history and because it's the right thing, but it's also important for us as a brand because we have to have people trust us. Does, does that Glass, Stephen Glass episode still linger in the, in the in the rafters, I know Jason Blair does at the New York Times. Um, I don't mean I mean, that, I think that I don't people pervasive, are certainly, but just mindful of something. Yeah, I think people are more mindful of the integrity of their journalism um, mm -hmm. than, although you know, most of the reporters that we hire bring such a such a sense of integrity mm -hmm. to it anyway. I mean, um, but you know, there because of that episode, in, um, I think people are more more aware of it. I mean, it. Uh, you know, I, I know it from talking with some folks who were there um, at the time and also from the film and just watching on. It, I mean, it was an, it was an, it, uh, an incredibly, uh, I mean, it was, it was not the best. You had the bad luck for it to be turned into a good movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Did you know he's teaching good. journalism ethics now, by the way? I didn't know yeah. that. I didn't. Yes. Hi, uh, Hugo Kerman. I'm a mid-career MPA student at the Kennedy School. Um, do you have any plans on expanding beyond the U.S., for instance, to Europe? Uh, have Boston in a different media category has been very successful expanding to many European countries? Thank you. Yeah, we're looking... International coverage is really, um, really interesting. I think that, you know, we try in every single print issue of the magazine and then at least, um, at least a couple times a week to always have uh, international content be in the mix. Um, so. Um, we've had reported uh, pieces from Venezuela, or um, we had uh, someone, Luke Mogelson, who was embedded in Afghanistan. We ran a piece um, uh, in the last two issues ago on that. So it's, it's really important. The question for us from just a business standpoint is um, the economics of it. More often than not, it works for us, it works best for us to work with freelance reporters who are, are contributing for us, and Luke, who I just mentioned, contributes for the New York Times as well. Um, and uh, and uh, 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 so we can get the content, we can get the ideas in the magazine, but we don't have the, you know a bureau in in Paris or Kabul or something something like that. Um, so, but but the international stuff I think is 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 key to having a fully mature, broad magazine in the future. Are you going to make it a weekly again? I don't think so. No, uh, it's, we don't have any plans to. I mean, print, 
Um, it's a bi-weekly now. Yeah, it used we to come be out. We, yeah, it was historically a weekly. Previous ownership brought it uh, down to a bi-weekly. Um, when I first bought the magazine, I was a little skeptical of the bi-weekly format um, for uh, for a few different reasons. But in print, I've really come around to it. I mean, it is. Um, it's often enough that we can be responsive to the news cycle, and if we need to like tear up a cover or whatever a day before, we can. Um, but it's um, it's also it's slow enough that we don't it's not every single week. I mean, are we producing another magazine, and so that we're able to keep the content um, relatively high. But you know, strategically, the way that we think about it internally is again, we have a lot more people interfacing with our brand and reading our content on the web, on their phones, on their iPads than we necessarily do for the print. Um, print product. We still print still um, important to us from an economics perspective. We um, uh, make money off of print, um, so it's not going to go anywhere. But we really try to keep everybody, you know, aware of the fact that people are coming to the New Republic each day, a lot of the time, not just waiting every two weeks to pick up the next uh, the next. And how are you issue. going to feed that beast? We've invested a lot of of. Um, of capital into digital only content. You know, we have we have people who are. Uh, we had a reporter go to the Consumer Electronics Show two weeks ago, and she wrote a five thousand web five thousand word web only piece, which was absolutely fantastic. Looking at you know the culture of CES in Las Vegas and the role of women and and um, theory and philosophy and some of the people that she met, and it was uh, it was a really great piece. But you know, it'll never appear in print. Um, mm. and it's just just on the web. Yes. Hi, I'm Carly Sedwitz. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. Uh, you mentioned the idea of moving away from uniques as a metric and, and maybe a way to create a more financially sustainable system for online for advertising and things. I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that and talk about what that actually would look like and if there's any organizations out there using different models for measurement. Um, I think that it's not that I think that uniques are important. I just think that we, we place way too much emphasis on them. Um, I think that the amount of time spent on the site or reading a piece is really, really important. We use, um, we use a few different analytics tools, but one of them that we use is something called Chartbeat, which enables us not only to see how many people are reading, um, uh, it, it's data in the aggregate, so there's no but we can see how many people are reading a piece at any given moment in time. But you can also see how far down an article they get, which is really, really interesting because sometimes you'll have a great headline, which will get lots of people, and you'll be like, wow, that, who would have thought that that journalism really was that, that many people wanted to know about that topic? But then you see that you know, you'll have 70% of people who will drop off after the first paragraph. But then you'll have other pieces like... Um, you know, Walter Kern just wrote a really wonderful first-person um, essay. He's a gun owner. He um, uh, has, you know, carries guns in his car. Talks about how he's had to uh, pull them on people and sort of tries to explain why so many gun owners feel so strongly about their weapons and their rights. Anyway, but um, the number of people who read really, really deep into that piece was on the web was, um, you know, well over seventy percent, which um, is not a number that you would ever know, because normally you ask, OK, what was the uniques on the article, not how much time did people spend there and how engaged were they there. Um, it's not just time spent on site. You could look at comments. You could look at, um, although comments tend to reward controversial uh, content, but you could look at 
social shares on Twitter or on um, Facebook. Um, you can also look at retention, which is something that we look at. If people sign up on our email list, how many of them are actually opening the emails or clicking through rather than just signing up. So I think that there's a whole host of, um, of, of metrics to look at. You asked me if I knew good um, companies that are focused on those. Um, I, I don't. I think most of the companies tend to have them baked into their profiles, like Google Analytics has it as well. Um, I was saying Chartbeat is what we use, but, um, but most people still look at uniques because that's where the cultural emphasis is. Yes, hi, I'm Kathy Chute. I'm the former publisher of a nonprofit magazine, Harvard Magazine. Alex was on the board. <laughs> um, and I currently consult to nonprofit uh, media startups, including another nonprofit magazine called Chop Chop. Um, I also teach a course on evolving business models in the media industry at the Extension School. And I have a question. I should for take you. that one. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> well, 5:30 tonight. All right. Seaver 204. And I just want one quick, quick comment about Facebook. I was a freshman advisor for many years, and uh, about in 2005, other freshman advisors said, "You know, you need to get onto Facebook and see what your students are doing." Mm -hmm. So I just want to let you know that was uh, the first Indeed. wave of Harvard uh, administrators. Yeah. Anyway, my question is a business one. Going back to the business model, uh, two parts. When you talk about experiential. Um, marketing or experiential experiences that you may be able to monetize or maybe part of your monetize. What kinds of things are you talking about? And in particular, are you looking at your, what I perceive as some of your competitors, the Atlantic, which has gotten quite involved in uh, conferences and events mm -hmm. in addition to really monetizing a lot of their digital stuff, as well as the Nation, which is a much smaller place but has focused a lot on uh, cruises with the editors mm -hmm. and things like that. And the second part of the, of the question is how, thinking along those experiential things, what do you really perceive as your competition? Is it the nation? Is it the Atlantic? Is it, but you, you're, I hear a broader set of uh, competitive yeah. voices. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so the questions of experiences. Um, the, I, um, access to content to me is like uh, clicking on a link to read a, a piece. Um, experiences to me are anytime when you choose that you're going to spend time with a brand or a topic. So um, I have that's a pretty I, I broad definition for me. I mean, sitting down to read a magazine is an experience. You choose to have that experience rather than saying more often than not, like, oh, there was that one article that I wanted to read in Vanity Fair. Let me flip to page, you know, eighty-four, whatever, um, to to read it. So um, the um, the iPad is a great place to sort of understand the difference between the two. We have. Um, what we call a web app experience in Safari, which is about access to content. For it's like, are there links that I are there things that I want to read there? And then we have the native app, which um, which we consider an experiential product because there it's like it is a curated, um, uh, paginated uh, um, experience. And the way it's fascinating to, for me to see. Um, how differently consumers think about these things. I, I keep going back to the, some of the research that we, we did, but you know, you ask people who read magazines, and you would say, um, we we did we did some groups where we'd say, you know, how do you read um, something like Vanity Fair? And then because someone would say, I love Vanity Fair, and they're like, oh, well, I flip through it. I do. I tend to go from page to page. Some people would go start at the back, but everyone would have a curated, paginated experience. And then you would ask, well, what do you think of Vanity Fair's website? And people would say, Vanity Fair has a website? Not because Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair has more traffic in some ways to their website than we do. So I'm not, it's not at all a knock on Vanity Fair. It's just to say that 
it's a totally different way of thinking about content. One is, exp is experiential, and the other, I, I think, is about accessing certain titles or certain articles that, um, that are there. Also in that experience category, I put events, I put audio, I put um, some of the other uh, topics there. So events are important to us. Um, whether or not they um, can be the future of the business, I'm sort of doubtful. I think that when we look from a business perspective, one of the core assets that we have is a lot of brilliant people, a lot of great reporters and, and um, who know quite a lot about, um, uh, about politics and the arts and culture. And the question is, how do we use that as an asset? And events is, a, is an easy sort of play for us because it's stuff that our readers are interested in. It's stuff that um, uh, subscribers are interested in. And we also have the ex expertise to uh, pair, pair it up. Um, on the question of competition, I think um, you know, our competitive set uh, is, is more sort of the, uh, the New Yorker, Atlantic, um, maybe New York Magazine in some, uh, in some instances, that type of sort of thought leadership publication than it is the opinion journals. I love you know, the nation. I think it's, the work that they do is very important. But that is much more of the set that um, the New Republic used to be in. And increasingly, I think that's a, a more and more challenging category. And so the, um, the category with The Economist and The New Yorker and The Atlantic, all of which are doing pretty well from a business perspective, all things considered, is where, uh, is where we're trying to go. Hi, I'm Becky Garrison. I'm a freelance religion writer. And one thing I've noticed in doing a lot of LGBT reporting as of late is what I'd call the rise of false equivalencies, where they'll put out someone usually from the right based on the fact they're a colorful character, interesting, without any examination whatsoever of the veracity of their claims, their funding streams, their data cited, and so forth. And it ends up pre presenting an article where on the YouTube is a photo and a video clip of someone saying something is totally inaccurate that is unchallenged. And I'm wondering, moving forward, what you intend to, thoughts about that? You got to challenge both sides and ask, yeah, <laughs> and ask all the same questions. And then, you know, I think have, it's, it, it plays into the thing, uh, what I was saying earlier about having assessments in, in the journalism and not just saying, like, you know, he said this, she said that, but actually saying, this is what they both said, here's some other data points, and here's what looks to actually be the case. So for LGBT issues, but for other, I mean, for all of them. Yes. Hi, Chris. My name's Dylan. Uh, I'm a student here in the college. I have a question more broadly about your work in sort of the digital landscape. Mm -hmm. Clearly, to date, you've thought a lot about connecting people online in meaningful ways. Uh, so I'm a composer here at Harvard, and I'm curious in your work at Facebook or at any other point along the way you thought about connecting creative-minded college kids like myself. Currently, there isn't really a platform for me if I wanted to go online and find, say, musician for a piece I wrote or for a programmer to find a graphic designer for a startup they're working on. What do you think about these types of connections and collaborations? I think it's interesting that Facebook historically has not tried to serve that role. Facebook um, was, uh, <clears throat> was much more about connecting with the people that you know and that um, who are your existing friends and family, not about finding other people. But um, you know, this is me just watching now as, as sort of someone who's unaffiliated with the company, but um, what they've done with the open graph search just in the past few weeks, I don't know if you followed this, um, Facebook significantly expanded their search functionality to make it um, sensitive to human language and makes it very interesting, it, it makes it possible to find exactly what you're talking about. I mean, if you're a composer and you need a, 
violinist at Harvard, um, you can actually now search for violinist at Harvard and get um, a list of people. And if your friends are friends with them, more often than not, you can contact them and say, hey, I need this, need this um, thing. So I think that's still sort of one of the corners of the web, which is very much unexplored, because there's some pretty complex human um, and psychological uh, um, issues underneath. But if anyone can solve it, it's, it's the folks at Facebook. And I think Open Graph is probably a step in that, that direction. Thanks. We're almost at the very end. Since we're back to Facebook, I have to ask you, what did you think of the social network? No, the movie. Um, <laughs> it was Hollywood. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, I don't know what you guys, where you guys live here at Harvard, but um, it made me wish that our dorms looked like, I mean, it was sort of like a luxury condominium. Or uh, there was, um, and, the, and the sex in the bathroom scene, all of that looked very interesting. I never, <laughs> maybe, it, I mean, I, I, I never saw anything like that. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's, um, I thought it was, what I thought that was great about about the film was that it actually, what it, for all the things it got wrong, what it got right was that um, we were college students at, at Harvard with an idea and we tried something out and it initially took off and you know it took time um, to build and the hard stuff was not just coming up with the idea, it was building it over time to reach the point that, um, that it's at today. And so I think it played into that um, belief that, you know, that, uh, you know, anybody, people, college kids in a dorm room can create something that can change the world, which, uh, or, which or was Or transform a 100-year-old magazine. <laughs> or perhaps. transform a 100-year-old uh, magazine. Chris Hughes, great to have you here. And congratulations on your purchase and very best luck with it. Sincerely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for having me.